This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. there and welcome to our special Halloween edition of Bird Hugger, sure to send chills of horror up your spine. I mean, we do have one pretty scary story to tell you. After all, that's what this holiday is all about, right? So grab a handful of Halloween candy, palm oil free of course, and join us. Today we're going to talk about how to make a pumpkin bird feeder, along with a discussion about how leaving the leaves on the ground will actually benefit your yard. Also, we'll be talking to Dr. Christine Shepard from the American Bird Conservancy about how to prevent birds from hitting your windows. And finally, we'll talk about the Dark Skies Association, an organization that is working hard to preserve the night sky for all of us to enjoy. Have a happy Halloween, and watch out for those ghosts and goblins. In this episode, since it is Halloween... I thought it might be fun to talk about the frightening folklore of the Scottish Highlands. Scottish lore tends to be extreme on the scary scale. There is one legend that seems particularly spooky, and that is the legend of the Bavanshi. The Bavanshi appears in the dark of night as a beautiful young woman wearing a long green gown. However, as she approaches you, you can clearly see, thanks to the moonlight, that she does not have human feet or legs but the legs and hooves of a deer. This creature has an insatiable bloodlust and prefers the blood of humans. To be more precise, she prefers the blood of male hunters. The Bavanshi is renowned for protecting the animals of the forest. She is known for luring hunters from their camps into the darkness and then draining their blood dry. The Bavanshi are drawn to a site when they smell the spattered blood of dead animals, especially when spattered blood is on the clothing of hunters. It is said they can smell the tiniest drop of animal blood from miles away. When they catch their human prey, their long fingernails turn into talons and they rip open the hunter's chest, dining on the juiciest and bloodiest parts of the body, like the heart and lungs and stomach. In one report by villagers, four hunters were camped in the highlands sitting around their campfire after having finished dinner when four Bavanshis approached them. Three of them each grabbed a hunter, draining all of their blood and leaving their lifeless bodies on the ground around the campfire. 
the fourth man fled towards the men's horses, who were tied to some trees close to the camp. The fourth Bavanshi chased him and tried to approach him, but was repelled by the iron in the horse's shoes, iron being one of the only ways to protect yourself from supernatural beings in the highlands. The Bavanshi detests the sunlight, and before dawn, hurry to find darkness and shelter inside old tombs and caves. When the hunter returned to the camp at daylight, he found the remains of his three hunter friends, their chests ripped open and their arms and legs torn to shreds, making them nearly unidentifiable. The Bavanshi are one of the reasons the Scottish are very wary about hunting, unless they have received a blessing from the local church, or someone dear to them has said the hunter's prayer, invoking God's protection while out in the woods at night. So, as we said, it's Halloween, and you can celebrate this spooky holiday with the birds by making them a pumpkin bird feeder. First, take a small pumpkin of about 9 to 12 inches in diameter and use a carving knife to slice it in half the long way horizontally. Scoop out the seeds with a spoon, which you can save for roasting later. Insert four wooden sticks of about 6 inches in length into the sides of the pumpkin. Make sure each of the two sets of sticks are squarely facing each other. Using bamboo barbecue skewers cut in half should work just fine. Just smooth off any rough or sharp edges. Measure out two long lengths of twine, roughly two and a half feet long each. Knot them together in the center so that you will have four sections of twine extending from the knot. Affix the knot to the outside center of the bottom of the pumpkin with a push pin or a tack. Knot the four loose ends of the twine together Fill the feeder with seeds and hang from a tree branch, and you have a pumpkin bird feeder. Spooky good fun, right? Okay, so why don't we talk a moment about why it's so important to not rake up your leaves. In fact, I'm saying hang up your rake and save your yard. What comes around goes around, right? For hundreds of years, property owners in the U.S. left the leaves in their yards where they fell with the understanding Mother Nature knew what she was doing, namely replenishing the soil with the rich nutrients that leaves release as they decompose. The first commercial garden rake wasn't invented until 1874, and as far back as 1894, the farmer's almanac was urging homeowners to leave their leaves on the ground. Enter the television era and the $60 billion a year horticultural industry, and we ended up brainwashed into thinking we needed to spend untold hours raking up or blowing leaves, bagging them, and transporting them to the local transfer station so they could overwhelm our nation's landfills. Thanks to inescapable corporate advertising, we thought we were required to strip our properties of the beneficial nutrients our trees, shrubs, and perennial plants needed so badly, so that we could spend a fortune buying bags of commercially prepared soil amendments many of which are poisonous to wildlife and snuff out the very microorganisms needed to grow healthy yards and gardens. Let's face it, 
We all drank the Kool-Aid. The National Wildlife Federation explains it this way. Leaves are soil. Trees shed their leaves as a way to create and fortify the soil along their root zone, their own special brand of fertilizer. As leaves decompose and break down, they become the main component in building healthy and robust dirt. Plant biologists claim leaves contain twice as many beneficial minerals as manure. They say leaf humus helps new plants become more strongly established, lightens heavy clay soils, increases the moisture retention of dry sandy soils, and protects the mycelium network that transports nutrients from plant to plant. And guess what? It's free. But wait, there's another bonus. Hundreds of species of butterflies and moths cocoon inside leaves for the winter as egg, pupa, chrysalis, or adult, and if left undisturbed, emerge in the spring. Luna moths and swallowtail butterflies create cocoons and chrysalises that resemble leaves so they can blend in with the landscape. Woolly bear caterpillars hide under piles of leaves to stay warm during the winter months, as do great spangled fritillaries, according to the North American Butterfly Association. You can greatly enhance the enjoyment of your yard by not bagging up these beauties and sending them to their demise at the transfer station. The other contentious issue surrounding leaf removal involves the growing unrest Americans are experiencing as more and more neighborhoods are inundated with loud and obnoxious leaf blowers. These machines not only create a wind force of up to 180 miles per hour, destroying vital topsoil, drying up tree roots, and redistributing toxic pesticides people spray on their lawns, they also spew 100% of their emissions and hydrocarbons into the environment, creating localized smog and adding to greenhouse emissions. The noise pollution created by these machines is causing a noticeable spike in hearing loss, tinnitus, asthma, and headaches, particularly in children, according to the organization Moms Clean Air Force. A gas-operated leaf blower can top 100 decibels, while OSHA requires hearing protection at 85 decibels, says the nonprofit organization Quiet Communities. It has been estimated that within the next several years, there'll be 50 million Americans going deaf due to loud noise, a great deal of which is contributed by garden machinery like leaf blowers and lawnmowers. Here are a few other things to consider. Commercially bagged mulch kills beneficial microorganisms and often consists of shredded wood pulp from the forestry industry, or is painted different colors using toxic chemicals that leak into the soil, poisoning groundwater and killing insects and birds. Instead, apply leaves and compost to reduce unwanted plant growth. In addition, leaving leaves in the garden over the winter not only protects your plants from penetrating icy winds, but also provides nutrients to the soil, making for more robust plants the following season. If you absolutely cannot stand the idea of leaving the leaves across your yard, rake them whole into a designated wildlife area at the back of the yard. Running them over with a lawnmower to shred them is a big no-no if you want beautiful butterflies in your yard come the springtime. The more leaves you leave in your yard, the more birds you will be supporting. Insects like to hide under leaves, and birds routinely patrol the underside of leaves looking for tasty insects to feed themselves and their little ones. These protein-laden insects are vital to a bird's survival. In addition, numerous species of birds use dried leaves to build their nests. And lastly, I just wanted to add that wet leaves can be just as slippery as ice. So I usually just clear the leaves off my walkways and even my driveway and leave the rest of the leaves in the yard for the wildlife.
And now I'd like to introduce Dr. Christine Shepard, the bird collision prevention specialist at the American Bird Conservancy. We're going to talk about the things you can do to prevent bird strikes on your windows. Okay, and Christine, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So can you tell our listeners, why are windows such a problem for birds? Windows are a problem for birds. They're actually, for glass anyway, also a problem for people. We learn about glass as a transparent solid when we're so young that we don't remember. So we, we think that we've always known about glass, but we learn by bumping into it because we really can't see it. And people are injured slamming into glass sliding doors and, and uh, glass walls every year. So birds, unfortunately, the first time they fly into or walk into glass are going full speed. They don't understand that it's a transparent barrier and they don't understand if there's a reflection that that reflection isn't actually a solid barrier. So they try to fly through to something on the other side or they try to fly into a reflection and they go full speed right into a, you know, a piece of glass, a solid. And also isn't the placement of their eyes uh, problematic when it comes to glass? The placement of their eyes is definitely one of them. We've got flat faces, our eyes are quite close together. We don't have anything sticking out between our eyes. Um, So we have very good depth perception, 3D vision. Birds use different kinds of information from their environment. So where, where we see the world as something we're moving into, something in front of us, birds actually perceive the world as something they're immersed in. Their eyes are on the sides of their heads. They see quite different things with each eye, which is something that people really I don't think are capable of imagining. So their attention is, you know, people are always saying, watch where you're going. Birds are watching in all directions. They're looking, you know, to make sure there's no danger. And they're looking just as much behind them as they are to the side and to the front. In fact, their most accurate vision is to the side because they use different mechanisms to tell themselves how fast they're moving. So when we're trying to stop collisions, uh, one of the, the ways we try to do that is by providing a signal that attracts birds' attention to what's in front of them in time so that they see it and will avoid it. So basically, they have really lousy depth perception. They don't really have much depth perception, maybe as far as the end of their beak so that they can get a good look at, do I want to eat this? Do I want to put it in my nest or feed it to my chick? But that's not how they gauge their process through the world. But this, you know, when you've seen a million pictures of a robin sort of looking out one eye at a worm, once they've spotted that worm, then they'll whip their head around and go nab it. Now, can we talk about the numbers for a moment? How many birds are uh, injured or killed by flying into glass every year? The Smithsonian did what's called a meta-analysis, which was published in 2014. And it shows that as many as a billion birds are killed every year. Wow, that's just, that's just mind-blowing. It's not supportable. It is unsupportable. So did you say that's just in the United States or North America? North America. Do you have a tally for worldwide injuries? No, no, there there are really not many monitoring programs outside the U.S. They're starting to do some monitoring in Latin America, and there's been a little bit of work done in some of the countries in Asia. But in terms of uh, 
what we see in the U.S., where cities like Chicago have been looking in the same areas for over 20 years. They don't have that kind of records. And, and you really need multiple years to get a picture of what's going on in a particular place because bird migration is very weather dependent. There are a lot of different factors. And some years you might see a lot of birds. The next year, uh, the birds are blown over because of a weather front. So you need to monitor for, for a number of years to get a real picture of um, what the mortality rate is in a particular area. So would you say migration, fall and spring migration are the two of the most dangerous times for birds? Fall migration is where we see the most collisions because that's when the most birds are on the move. In spring, the birds that have successfully migrated south and survived are making their way back up. So it's particularly tragic that birds that are close to their breeding grounds are, are hitting buildings. But there's mortality in late spring and summer. Birds are fledging young and youngsters uh, don't know where they're going and don't always have the ability to control their flight. Well, there are collisions in winter, especially around bird feeders. The windows that, if you're gonna make any windows on your house bird friendly and you have a bird feeder, those are the windows. Those are demonstrably the most dangerous pieces of glass on your house. Could we talk about that for a moment? What are some things people can do at their, in their homes? to make a window bird safe? There's a whole range of things. Really, there's something for everybody, depending on, you know, if you're trying to do something really fast because you suddenly realize you have a problem. I mean, you could go out and put post-it notes all over the window as a placeholder. You can use tempera paint, which you can get for pennies a quart. Just put it on with a sponge, or if you want to be sophisticated, there are ways to use stencils. You can take a bar of soap and simply run it across the window and that will dull the reflection. So those are some of the really cheap ways to go. You can install what's called an Acopian bird saver. It's paracord that you dangle every three inches from the top of the window. Someone I know had a great suggestion. You thread a rod through a length of deer fence and you throw the rod into the gutter above your window. You can get external motorized solar shades. So when you're not in the room, you can use a remote and just put the shade down on the outside of the window. It also keeps your house cooler in the summer. People can use decals. A lot of people, you know, you hear people say, well, I put up a decal, it didn't work. This is where, again, you get to this difference between birds and humans. Humans understand the concept of glass. Birds don't. They can understand a piece of local glass sometimes but they don't generalize. So if you put a decal on a glass door or a window and a human sees it, they know immediately that means glass is there. What a bird sees is an obstacle to fly around. They don't understand that it's on a piece of a transparent solid. So if you want to use decals or tape, the important thing is the spacing. And the important spacing to stop collisions is really two inches you know, between any two shapes. And, you know, at that density, a lot of decals are really too big. You don't want to put that many of them up on your window, but it, they don't have to be that big. A half inch dot is really enough for a bird to see as it is an obstacle. And then if you have the next dot two inches away, the bird thinks I can't fly between them. So when we put stuff up, we're thinking about the pattern, but what the birds are reacting to is the spaces. They see the pattern as 
a set of obstacles. And to them, the question is, can I easily fly through the spaces between those obstacles? So now what is your opinion about how close bird feeders can be to the window? I know there's some controversy. Some people say, you know, a foot from glass, three feet from glass. I think you should make the glass bird friendly. Then you can put it wherever you want. Part of the enjoyment of having a bird feeder is to be indoors looking out the window with the kids or the grandkids watching the birds come up to the feeder. So if that window is prepared properly to make it bird safe, your feeling is it would be okay to have that feeder very close to the window. Yes. Okay, so uh, let's switch gears for a moment and talk about commercial buildings. Do you often receive requests from corporations asking for help on how to make their larger corporate buildings bird safe? Not as often as I'd like, no. What usually happens is people living and working in the building want to do something. And it's very difficult. Once a, a building is up, the building owners often don't want to be bothered. And in some cases, they're sympathetic. And we have worked, especially at colleges and universities, we've been able to do some major retrofits of dangerous buildings. One of the reasons that we focus so much on enacting legislation to require new buildings to use bird-friendly materials is that most of these bird killers out there are legal. There's no law that will force a building owner to retrofit any of the glass. So we're trying to, to focus on legislation, which allows us to address large areas and keep new buildings like that from being constructed. Well, that concludes our interview. I just want to thank Dr. Shepard for joining us today and for giving us all of that great information. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. So let's talk a moment about the International Dark Sky Association, an organization that's working to keep the skies dark at night to help the planet. As a young girl, I grew up in New Haven County, a very commercialized and industrialized area of Connecticut. It wasn't until I was 14 years old and traveled with a girls' club on a camping trip to New Hampshire that I saw the spectacular night sky full of stars for the first time in my life. Nocturnal light pollution, or sky glow as it is commonly called, is the result of overly bright, poorly targeted, improperly shielded, and often unnecessary commercial industrial and residential lighting, according to the International Dark Sky Association, a nonprofit organization that seeks to educate people about the adverse effects of light pollution on wildlife and ecosystems. Sadly, there is a 6% worldwide increase in night sky illumination each year. Artificial night lighting alters the planet's natural rhythms of day and night. Birds, mammals, pollinators, and amphibians, like salamanders and frogs, are impacted because light disrupts food foraging, rest and sleep cycles, as well as mating and reproduction, according to scientists. For example, Toads and frogs emit their croaking sound in the evening to attract mates. If a wetland is exposed to artificial light, this reduces the mating calls of amphibians, greatly reducing populations. Excessive nighttime lighting can lead to birds missing vital migration cues. As a result, 
birds can end up migrating too early or too late in the season, resulting in malnutrition and starvation due to being out of sync with available food sources along their route and at their destination. Many species of birds migrate at night, using the moon and stars to lead them home. Millions of these birds die every year due to the confusion caused by outdoor illumination, which can lead them to fly into skyscrapers and other buildings, as well as misdirect them to areas with no trees for roosting or food sources. Streetlights in the parking lots of shoreline condominium developments and restaurants can cause sea turtle hatchlings to become disoriented, leading them in the wrong direction, away from the ocean. The hatchlings mistake the artificial glare for the light of the horizon line where the ocean is located. Millions of sea turtle hatchlings die every year in parking lots in Florida. Multiple studies are showing that light at night also adversely affects the growth of trees and plants, affecting the ways in which they absorb water and undergo photosynthesis. Nightlight also disrupts the growth of spring buds and interferes with normal flowering times. The wrong flowering time can have monumental impacts on the insects that rely upon these blossoms for nectar and pollen, severely reducing populations of insects. This, in turn, leads to starvation of birds, since insects are a bird's primary protein source. Excessive night lighting can also lure trees out of dormancy far too early, leading to premature death, since dormancy is what allows a tree to withstand the harshness of cold winters. A moth's delicate life cycle is also impacted when subjected to light at night. Moths engage in transverse orientation, meaning they constantly fly at an angle relative to a distant light source, usually the moon. Light causes these nocturnal insects to completely stop their feeding activity and instead spend their time in confusion, flying into the light in order to correct their internal navigation system, leading to starvation and death. The artificial light can also cause them to revert to inactive roosting behavior ordinarily reserved for the daytime, leading to delayed or non-existent egg-laying, resulting in diminished populations. Moths are very efficient pollinators. With their extra-long tongues and hairy bodies, they can carry a lot of pollen, and their work is vital to both fruit and vegetable crops, not to mention trees and native perennial plants. In fact, some studies are showing they are generalists when it comes to pollinating and are better at their jobs than honeybees, who do have a tendency to pollinate only select plants or species. Here's how you can help. Remove any unneeded lighting. Remove floodlights, spotlights, and motion-activated lights. There is little data to support the idea that outdoor lighting prevents crime. Provide an enclosure for the bulbs that you do use and aim the bulbs straight downward. When buying lighting, look for the International Dark Sky Association seal of approval. Search the IDA's database for products that minimize glare. Advocate for a lighting ordinance in your town and push for motion-sensitive street lighting. Talk to family and friends about reducing light pollution and get involved by contacting the International Dark Sky Association headquartered in Tucson, Arizona at darksky.org. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. 
you will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.